Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is George Ray, and I am your regular host. Today, I am joined by one of ELI's staff attorneys, Jared Page, who will be conducting today's interview. Jared works at the intersection of climate change, policy research, and education. He works on a broad portfolio of projects at ELI, including the Climate Judiciary Project, Public Lands Management, and Sea Level Rise and Coastal Resilience. For today's episode, Jared will be interviewing award-winning author Tony Hiss, who recently published a book titled Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth. Born in Washington, D.C., Tony is best known for his book, The Experience of Place, which explores the different ways in which people experience public spaces and encourages readers to reevaluate how we plan, build, and manage our surrounding landscapes. Hiss was also a staff writer at The New Yorker for more than 30 years, was a visiting scholar at New York University for 25 years, and has lectured around the world. He has contributed to a wide variety of environmental and transportation initiatives and is passionate about the protection of biodiversity and the restoration of America's cities and landscapes. Not only will we be hearing more about Tony Hiss and his work, but we will also have a conversation about the importance of biodiversity and land conservation within the climate movement. Tony will be discussing how people view, value, and relate to nature and the resultant effect on societal attitudes towards the environment and environmental decision-making. Finally, we will discuss solutions for climate regulation and wildlife protection, as well as the role industry and innovation play in the environmental movement. Tony and Jared, thank you for being here today. Well, thank you, Georgia. Such a pleasure being here. Thanks, Georgia. Tony, I'd like to start by letting the listeners know more about you and your work over the years. Can you tell us more about your career journey and what drew you to writing and environmental advocacy? Well, I can't explain it, but I was lucky enough right out of college to be hired at the New Yorker magazine. This was long ago. And not only was it a magazine that prized good writing and accuracy, but it had the luxury of being a weekly instead of a daily, which meant you had time to sort of reflect about things. If newspapers are the first draft of history, it's sometimes said, the New Yorker aspired to be sort of the second draft of history. Not only what's happening, but what does it mean? What impact is it having on us? So New York City was my beat at the time when cities were undergoing convulsive post-war changes. This was the time of Robert Moses versus Jane Jacobs. It was the time of urban renewal and the destruction of neighborhoods. But it was also sort of a battle for the 20th century soul of the city. At the same time, we were still being informed by a 19th century battle for the soul of the city, by which I mean that it wasn't just that post-war building materials were new. It was also that some people thought the nature of the city was changing there was suburbanization going on. So the places that had been important to the city previously, according to these metrics, no longer had the same value. And you could cash in those values. Particularly, I'm thinking of a giant place like Pennsylvania Station, the railroad station, and the whole collection of 20s and 30s movie palaces, extraordinary Shangri-La-like 
constructions. The idea was, well, people are watching TV now. They're not going to need movie theaters. We can cash in the value of that property and, and build on it. And the same with thinking train stations no longer need to welcome people to the city. They're leaving the city. The new Pennsylvania station was squashed under the old Pennsylvania station. And you've scuttled around with low ceilings and fluorescent lighting. This was the beginning of the historic preservation movement. But it wasn't the past so much that people were desperately concerned about. It was the keeping going something that was part of the present. The station like that, the enormity of it, the careful detailing of it, made you feel safe, made you feel welcome, made you feel part of an ongoing pageant, made you feel part of a city in action. This was a time when people like Lewis Mumford and other urban historians were beginning to suggest that cities had come into being not just to make economies better and to knock ideas into people's head, but that they had deliberately been set up many, many years ago to further the evolution of humanity, that this was a way of concentrating our abilities in one place, and we began to grow as a species. So all this was going on. At the same time, people who were taking a longer view began to re-recognize that someone like Frederick Law Olmsted, the creator of Central Park, had the same kind of longer vision to see the city. The city had been divided up into squares and oblongs, but within 30 years, it was Olmsted's insight that people were pulling apart from each other. The democracy was not flourishing because they didn't have places to congregate, and you needed vast open spaces and green spaces to do that. So that was where Central Park came from. Then he later went on to places like Buffalo, where he said it's not enough to have a park in a city. You should redesign the city as a park so that everyone is connected at every moment. All this was going on, and I was trying to make sense of it. Well, I want to pick up on that, Tony. It sounds like New York was really a foundational location for you in your career of environmental stewardship. And you wrote a book about that. In your book, Experience of Place, you talk about the different ways that people view the surrounding environment. But how would you define place? And what role do different places play in shaping the human experience? And how do they relate and impact to environmental stewardship? Well, place came to me to mean particularly places where people congregated, public spaces, whether or not they were privately owned or owned by the city or some other nonprofit group. And I realized that the surviving train station in New York, Grand Central Station, was an exemplar of that. You come up out of the subway and you come into this extraordinary room, miles high room with the ceiling painted blue with the stars of the zodiac on top of it. And that just gave you a different sense of where you are and who you are. And there was nothing written down about why that was. And I began to see that it was more than just getting from A to B. It was feeling as though we looked around us for things that nourished us and that we had this capacity built into us to sort of respond on all cylinders. We were taking in everything we could see and feel and hear it all at once. Then I began to realize that this was an ability went way back. In fact, that was something that was confirmed just recently. Throughout the Middle East and Central Asia, there are these gigantic miles-wide structures called kites because they sort of had tails hanging off of them. Twice as old in some cases as Stonehenge, maybe 9,000 years old, were deliberate human constructions built to herd and kill 
animals. And they've just, within the last year, found a couple of monoliths, which look to be stone carvings that have on them maps of these places, incredibly detailed maps of these places, and accurate. So we had this capacity to think at this largest scale long before we settled down, became farmers, long before we constructed cities in the first place. Yeah, that's fascinating, Tony. I hadn't heard about those kites. And, you know, it speaks to the different ways in which cultures have sought to understand their environment and interact with the environment around them. And in recent years, there's been a strong emphasis to incorporate diverse perspectives. I'm thinking of traditional and indigenous knowledge into environmental decision making. Not only do we work on advancing tribal sovereignty and consultation here at ELI, but we've witnessed a myriad of efforts taking place worldwide. Can you speak a little bit more about what are the ways in which different cultures value and treat the environment? And how can understanding those different perspectives help us become better environmental stewards? First, I'll say a word about someone I got interested in after Olmsted, and that was a man named Benton Mackay, who was considered the father of the Appalachian Trail. And he had one of these insights, thinking at a different scale. In the summer of 1900, the year he graduated from college, he and a pal hiked up, bushwhacked their way up Stratton Mountain, one of the green mountains in Vermont. There were no trails in those days. Got to the top, shinned up the tallest trees they could find, swaying at the top. He had this sensation, which he later called a planetary feeling, that he was in a single place that stretched along the ridge of the Appalachian Mountains from Maine all the way down to Georgia. And that insight led him to write an essay years later, suggesting a trail along the ridge tops, which became the Appalachian Trail. Well, that kind of thinking at scale and thinking in terms of protecting places at that scale has been carried forward continuously by indigenous people. For instance, at the top of North America, we not only have two mountain chains, the Appalachians in the east and the Rockies in the west, but across the top is this extraordinary landscape, the boreal forest, still intact, probably the largest natural landscape intact anywhere in the world, 3,700 miles long, 1,000 miles top to bottom. And the indigenous people up there are known as the First Nations, even though they were badly treated by the Canadian government were never actually thrown off the land, so they have continuous contact with the land. And now they're being turned to by the Canadian government to create a whole second national park system, which they would operate and be the moccasins on the ground, as they say. And I met an extraordinary Innu leader, a young woman named Valerie Courtois, who explained to me the difference between the kind of planning her people wanted to do and the kind of planning government tended to want to do. These people depend on caribou. So for them to thrive, the caribou have to thrive. Our whole lifestyle, she told me, we're married to the land. Our whole lifestyle revolves around following migratory herds. So we, like them, need a lot of space to be who we are as a people. Our elders say that if the caribou disappear, we won't be in it anymore. In the planning that gets taught in schools, first you mark off areas for industrial development, then you decide what to protect. The government has suggested a 12% set aside. But in the planning that gets taught by the land, we start out asking what needs to stay where it is for indigenous people to stay where they are. What will you need to remain you? Indigenous thinking leads to half-earth figures of a higher meaning, protecting at least half the land. Tony, I know you talk a lot about some of those stories in your most recent book, Rescuing the Planet, and I'd like to turn to that book. 
you really emphasize the importance of biodiversity and habitat conservation, especially for climate change. What role do ecosystems play in regulating and impacting the climate? And why should we care about conservation efforts? That is the core question, Jared. Thank you. When I got to the New Yorker many years ago, it was at the beginning of environmental concern. They had recently published Silent Spring, Rachel Carson's book about DDT. It's taken a long time as things unfold for us to realize that this is really a three-part planetary crisis. The first one that came to our attention was the kind of thing she was writing about, the poisoning of the planet. The second part was the heating of the planet. It's been back in the news this summer with the tremendous heat waves, wildfires, and storms. And the third part is the life itself. For a long time, the biodiversity part seemed maybe the fuzzy part. But in fact, it turns out the science of this is robust and that we need functioning, healthy ecosystems to keep everything going. Without the patterns created by life forms, which we call ecosystems, really, we would never have enough food to eat because of the pollination that we need to our crops. We would never have enough clean water to drink because of the way living creatures purify water. And we would never even have enough air to breathe because the phytoplankton in the sea provide the oxygen that we need for every second breath. So this is every bit as existential as solving the pollution problem and solving the heating problem. At the same time, we're beginning to sense the ultimate place, I would say, which is the biosphere, which is this layer of life around the earth that keeps us going and that we're a part of. We've gotten used to thinking of it as something vast and something ancient. It seems to go back almost to the beginning of the planet itself, remarkably. But we're just beginning to see that it has a third dimension, too, or almost an absence of a third dimension. Most living creatures live within a vertical band that ranges from the top of Mount Everest to the bottom of Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean. That's only a distance of about 12 and a half miles, laid out flat, as someone said. You could easily drive across it in 20 minutes. So there is this thinness. In addition to the ancientness and the robustness of the biosphere, it has this built-in vulnerability that we're only just beginning to come to terms with. Similarly, we're realizing the lives around us are of a different nature. Descartes thought animals were just machines. And now we know that animals have rich inner lives, that elephants can remember other elephants for 12 years, that they are empathetic, that octopuses can recognize human faces, that spiders can dream, that bees, which have a brain no bigger than a poppy seed, have richer in their lives. We are surrounded by not only life, but awareness. And the upshot of that is there really is no such thing as vacant land. It may not have human uses, but it has life in it. The challenge now is to try to invent something that I call all species design. We're going to add human uses to a place. How do we do that without disrupting the lives that are already there? Tony, your discussion of the biosphere in, in your book, I found extremely compelling and illuminating and, you know, would encourage anyone to sort of look into the way Tony describes the biosphere in his book. Georgia mentioned you have speaking engagements all over the world, and you recently spoke at an event organized by the Western New York Land Conservancy, where you discussed a 30 by 30 approach to land conservation that New York should be taking. 
What do we mean by 30 by 30? For our listeners, it's the idea to protect 30% of lands and waters by 2030. It's called the America the Beautiful Initiative, following Executive Order 14008, tackling the climate crisis at home and abroad. President Biden set a goal to conserve 30% of the nation's lands and waters by 2030. Multiple federal agencies have collaborated to issue millions in grant funding through the America the Beautiful Challenge to states, tribes, and nonprofits to advance the agenda. An interactive map is underway, and states are taking action, too, and that includes New York, which is part of the reason you were there to speak. Tony, how do you see 30 by 30 approaches being achieved across the U.S.? Jared, the 30 by 30 approach is actually a slightly watered down version of the science, which says that by and large, we have to protect something like 50% of the land of the habitat in order to keep life healthy. We've so far protected about 15% of the land, and it took us 150 years after we created Yellowstone National Park to do that. And now we're suddenly being told we have to accelerate that tremendously, even to get to 30% by the year 2030. 30 by 30 would mean doubling the amount of protected land we have. What was exciting to me to find out when I went up to Western New York was the way people are responding to this challenge. There was a land conservancy up there, typical of regional groups that over the last 30 years had protected something like 10 to 12,000 acres. They got inspired by the 30 by 30 challenge and began to realize that they were the custodians of extraordinarily biodiverse and enormous forests that the Iroquois Indians had kept alive for so many years. To protect that landscape would actually mean the need to protect something like 1.1 million acres, which they're calling the Western New York Wildway. And suddenly that's become their new program. Going from a vision of saving 10,000 acres to a vision of saving over a million acres in one swoop is extraordinary. But that's the kind of way I've found people are responding to this challenge. As you said, Jared, New York State itself adopted a 30 by 30 goal, and the only other state so far that's done that is California. They're actually a bit ahead of New York. They've so far protected about 24% of the state and think they're on track to protect 30% by 2030. Tony, you mentioned 30% is actually an underestimate according to science and the targets that we need to meet in order to protect biodiversity successfully. It's a really pressing problem, and we, we need action on this issue. And we want to make sure that our listeners leave feeling empowered and hopeful that progress is possible. What are some examples of some successful conservation efforts, and what actions can listeners take to make a local or global impact on this issue? Well, it's suddenly become 30 by 30, a global password. And that's because last December in 2022, 188 nations meeting in Montreal adopted this as a global goal to protect 30% of the planet. I found, again, people out of nowhere responding to this urgent need unexpectedly. I think my favorite story is about M.C. Davis, a Floridian who became a multimillionaire commodities trader, liked to think of himself as a good old dirt road panhandle boy from up in northwest Florida, had no interest in the environment, he thought, until one day he was caught in a traffic jam. Fuming, he saw a high school billboard that said, Black Bear Seminar, and he thought, anything's better than this, peeled off, went to inside an auditorium, 
half a dozen people there said a couple of Canadian tourists who'd gotten lost, a couple of drunks sleeping it off, looking for donuts. But up on the stage, two wonderful women who were talking about the Florida black bear and how they were endangered because their habitat, the extraordinary longleaf pine forests of the southeast was being wiped out. The reason it was being wiped out was that after the Civil War, when the plantations had floundered, the landowners began chopping down the forest. He went up to these ladies and said, I want to give you enough money to keep you going for two years, and I need your help. And they thought, uh-oh, what's the catch here? And he said, what I need is a list of the 100 best environmental books on way behind the curve. They gave him a list, and he read the books, and then he went out and began buying up over 50,000 acres of played-out peanut farms to restore them to longleaf pine, and began spending half a million dollars a year planting new pine trees. By the time I caught up with him, it was 13 years later, the place looked still rather scruffy. And, I, and he said, well, of course it does. We're 13 years into a 300-year project, come back in 287 years. MC is not with us, but he endowed his land before he left so that the project is being carried forward. That kind of response is extraordinary. Another kind of response that's extraordinary. Up in Canada, a man named Tony Clevenger began to realize that there was a problem with interstate highways. Banff National Park, the preeminent national park in Canada, is bisected by their equivalent of an interstate highway. In the summer, 30,000 cars and trucks a day go through this highway. There's a terrible problem of roadkill. Something like a million to two million big animals a year are killed in collisions with cars. It's also a huge cost to car owners. He thought there was something that could be done about this, and that was to reconnect the land across and under the highways. They built dozens of culverts under the highway and six what he called landscape bridges, which were overpasses that were vegetated and could only be used by animals. Well, in the last 20 years, animal collisions are down something like 80 percent. And at the same time, they have, with their hidden cameras, shown that grizzly bears, wolves, wolverines, moose, elk, small things too, all use these passages. It's an extraordinary success. Suddenly, there's Department of Transportation money available for starting projects like that down here, too. Those are remarkable stories, Tony, and I think really just demonstrate the power of people to make change. In addition to hearing about your work today, I wanted to open the door to a dialogue about the intersection between the work you've done and the work ELI does. As you and many of our listeners will know, ELI has undertaken quite a bit of work over the years looking at legal and policy mechanisms and frameworks for good governance. Far from exhaustive, but particularly relevant to this conversation are a few different initiatives. I'm thinking of our Adapting Biodiversity Law Report. It was a project seeking to improve laws governing biodiversity so they better adapt to a changing climate, to educate decision makers on the tools that are at their disposal. I'm also thinking of our recent Filling the Gaps report. This was made particularly relevant after the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Sackett versus EPA, and the Filling the Gaps report has numerous strategies for state and tribal protection of waters that are not protected by the Federal Clean Water Act. I'm also thinking of our compensatory mitigation research, which analyzes all three of the various mechanisms available under Section 404 of the Clean Water Act, mitigation banking, in-lieu fee mitigation, and permittee responsible mitigation in order to offset adverse impacts to wetlands. 
And I know you spent some time engaging with our body of work before the podcast and really appreciate that. It would be great to hear what you make of this work and what you think organizations like ELI can be doing to bring governance into our climate future. I'm very impressed with the work ELI is doing. I think the Filling the Gaps report is particularly exciting because everything's been thrown into turmoil by the Sackett decision, which is clever wordsmithing to try and remove oversight from wetland conversion. When the court talks about the language needs to reflect everyday parlance, parlance itself is not really an everyday word, but it does throw into relief the whole notion of even before the decision, were we doing enough? If we need something like 50% of various kinds of landscape to be retained in order to keep the life in it healthy, we've already lost about half the wetlands in, in the continental U.S. since settlement, since the American Revolution. Maybe that's as much as we can lose. And if we have a system for permitting further losses, yes, that regulates it, but maybe we can't afford to lose anymore. And we're still losing something like 60 to 80,000 acres a year. It's one thing to talk about no net loss, but maybe we need no loss whatever at this point. My counsel would be, I'm not a lawyer, my dad was, but I'm not, that for environmentally conscious lawyers, your real client now is the biosphere. How can we continue to move forward without losing any more wetlands? That's why this filling the gaps report is a wonderful idea of just pushing any idea that comes forward and making it possible, sometimes you sort of have to jumpstart something. There was a guy who was one of my heroes in Portland, Oregon, named Mike Hauk, who back in the 70s and 80s, when parks departments had no use, they thought, for wildlands, their business was recreation. There was a beautiful little marsh near the Willamette River that he wanted to see protected, and no one was doing anything about it. So he just got some bright yellow posting signs no hunting, no despoliation signs, tacked them up around the edge of this wetland and said, this is now the Oak Bottoms Wildlife Refuge. His proclamation, not the city's, but suddenly people began treating it as such. In New York, the Bronx River, a despoiled little river, has been restored by people who live next to it simply because they decided, we don't want to live next to something hideous. We want to live next to something healthy. And they've done such a good job in the last 20 years that a beaver has reappeared in the river for the first time in a couple of hundred years. Naturally, it was given the nickname Justin Beaver. <laughs> well, I think those are a couple really inspiring anecdotes and stories of people, the power of people to make change, which is fantastic. I think another thing that ELI does that is so exciting and so important are these National Wetlands Awards that you bestow every year. For instance, this year's business leadership initiative was a guy who has managed to make the idea of restoring landscapes something that institutions can invest in, pension funds and college endowments, uh, and has all along the way protected something like 48,000 acres of wetlands. You guys do terrific stuff, and you guys are so well positioned and have the intelligence and the placement to do that. Wetlands occupy only 5 or 6% of the land. And yet, we know for sure that 40% of plants and animals spend part of their life, if not all of their life, in wetlands and depend on them for their survival. This is a key ecosystem. It has to be 
treated as seriously as anything that we're responsible for. Wetlands are often called super systems, the equivalent of rainforests and coral reefs in terms of their planetary importance. And for our listeners' benefit, the National Wetlands Awards are presented annually to individuals who have excelled in wetlands protection, restoration, and education. You can find out more on our website or on other episodes of People, Places, Planet podcast where we've featured the Wetlands Award winners, and I encourage you to check those episodes out. Tony, if listeners are interested in the topics we covered in this conversation, where might you suggest they could go to learn more? Depends on where you live. If you live in a city, you could get involved with some tree planting, some local restoration. You could even decide that streetlights are what you want to be interested in. Too many streetlights send light up into the air as well as down to earth where people are. And the light that we send up in the air is very damaging to migrating birds, disorients them, and to insects. We always thought that insects were drawn to light but it turns out that it's more complicated than that. It's light at night that disorients them. Even in the darkest nights, insects flying around tried to keep their back to the sky because the sky was slightly less dark than the rest of the atmosphere. So it's very important to redefine streetlights, to refine the light so that it shines downward. It's almost impossible to look around in a city and not see something that needs to be done. There's a Dutch urban expert, Cecil Konendijk, whose mantra is 330-300. If you look out the window, he thinks you should see at least three trees. There should be at least 30% tree canopy coverage of streets, and you should be within at least 300 meters of a decent park. Out in the suburbs, there's this whole effort to bring native plants back to lawns, the pollinator pathway movement to bring bees and native plants back. Turns out lawns are perhaps the third largest crop we grow in this country after corn and wheat, and it's become a monoculture. And then, of course, there are the large landscapes that need protecting too. But as I say, I think our real constituency is the biosphere itself and all of its elements. Well, Tony, I think you've given our listeners a wide variety of things to think about and opportunities to engage and just want to thank you again for being here today and for raising awareness about the importance of conservation efforts. Such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so very much. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.